Our text this morning is Psalm 6. It's one of the more emotionally intense and raw psalms. It's often classed with what are called the penitential psalms, that is the psalms of repentance. And while the psalmist doesn't explicitly repent here, it's clear that he thinks his predicament is in some way related to his own sin. It's perhaps better to think of this uh, psalm as a psalm of lament. Because Psalm 6 is a desperate cry. It's a painful, brutally honest. And the title to it indicates that apart from its original setting, like many of the psalms, it was used in the temple liturgy of Israel, and thus it was preserved for all who suffer long, not just for the original situation, for all who are disheartened, and for all who are confronted, as we all are, with the ultimate question of their own mortality and their own helplessness. And so the Christian church has rightfully, I think, placed the reading and the praying of this psalm, Psalm 6, within the Lenten season, it's where it ended up in the early centuries, where it has served as an instrument of repentance and reflection and renewal. And so we'll look at the text under the four headings which are there in your bulletin. How long? Save me tears and the Lord has heard. So first, how long? The, the psalmist here, he senses, and, and he does this in a way that we moderns do not do instinctively anyway. He senses that his situation is in some way a situation of divine correction or divine chastisement. Lord, he says, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. He believes he's under divine displeasure or discipline. And he wants, really he pleads with God to temper or to soften his response to him. Please, Lord, do not deal with me in anger or wrath. He knows, we don't know why, but he knows that he deserves discipline, but he desires grace. He deserves discipline. But he desires grace and he lets God know that. So I want to say a few words about this. First, and we've said this before, but it can't be said too often. Divine wrath is what the God of light and love does in the fullness of his perfection to deal with evil. God is not peevish. He does not throw temper tantrums. He does not lose it. His wrath is his settled, holy, good, calm, perfect, resolute opposition to evil. 
And it's precisely because God is love that he's angry with sin, that he exercises his love as wrath. As we've said before, there's no yin and yang in God. There's no light and darkness. There's no love and hate. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, the psalmist here, you'll notice he doesn't draw a direct, direct line between his own sin and his own situation. And it would be dangerous to do that, not to mention... It would be pompous to go around like Job's friends, assuming that suffering people must be suffering because of their own sin. You remember the the people in John chapter 9? They came to Jesus and they, they said, Who sinned that this man was born blind? Whose fault is this, in other words? Who can we blame? Him or his parents? And Jesus replies there, neither. It happened so that God's glory might be revealed in his life. He does the same thing Jesus does in Luke's gospel. Luke 13, where he says to the people, Do you think those Galileans who Pilate had slain while they were sacrificing, you think they were worse sinners than the other people in Galilee? You think those 18 people who were killed by the Tower of Siloam were worse sinners than all the other people living in Jerusalem? You think those 50 people killed in that nightclub were worse sinners than anybody living in Orlando? Jesus answers his own question with, I tell you, no. You know what he does say, though? He says, but unless you repent, you too shall likewise perish. He doesn't argue about whose fault is it and who's better than what. He says, when a calamity strikes, here's what you should think. I should repent because I can perish. And this is instructive for our text this morning. While there's no direct connection between our sin and our predicament, or if there is a direct connection, it's known only to God, nevertheless, there is some relationship And the psalmist kind of grasped that because of the fall, because of the human condition. So in wisdom, he uses his distressing situation to examine himself. He doesn't get too caught up with whose fault is this? Does this mean I'm a worse sinner than other people? And he wants to allow the Lord's discipline to do its work in him. So I think it's very important that Without drawing some direct line, we allow these hardships, illnesses, tragedies, the enemies we face in life, to be for us opportunities of self-examination. We can do this without assuming that everyone is the cause of their own distress. In fact, in this text, 
The psalmist is ill. He's ill, and in addition to being ill, he has external enemies. And the relationship between the two is, I think, left intentionally unclear, fuzzy, ambiguous. So, he believes he's being corrected or disciplined or chastened, and he asks God not to do so in wrath. Rather, in verse 2, he pleads for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, be gracious to me, Lord, for I am faint. God does not treat us. He does not treat his children as our sins deserve. And knowing that, we can plead for mercy. Sometimes our own sense of justice prohibits us from doing this. God does not treat you as your sins deserve. And because he is that kind of God, you should plead for mercy. And the psalmist does that. He's pleading for mercy because he's cracking under the situation. And it's strained. He's faint. His vigor is gone. He's languishing. His, his strength wanes. He says, heal me, O Lord, or restore me, O Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. Whatever the condition is, his body and his soul are gripped by a kind of intense pain, and he feels like his life is endangered. So he prays for healing. People who are acutely ill do not pray, if it be your will, please heal me. They pray for healing. The if it be your will part is implied in cases like this, and it doesn't need to be articulated. Even more basic than that, the psalmist believes God wants his people to flourish. He created us whole. He will restore us to wholeness in Christ. So there's nothing wrong with praying for healing without reservation. The psalms are full of prayers like that. Full of them. Lord, heal me. In one sense, underneath that cry, as we've said many times before, is the cry for resurrection immortality. That's why it's such a primitive, basic cry. Now, the intensity here, the intensity of the suffering which confronts us, and it confronts us with our frailty, does it not? Our mortal existence. But it's, it's even harder to endure when this intense pain continues, and it continues. It lengthens out in duration, and thus we get, at the end of verse 3, this sad cry for pity. How long, Lord, how long? It's actually a broken sentence. Those who pray it can't even finish the thought. How long, Lord? How long? This cry is found throughout the Psalms. You find it throughout the prophets. And as we've seen, even the martyrs in heaven under the altar are praying, How long, O Lord? Suffering needs to find words. 
it seems to be basic to the human condition that we have to document our travail. And and this is one reason why the Psalms are such a gift to us, especially the penitential Psalms, the Psalms of lament. These words, how long, O Lord, are suffering's perennial chorus, lonesome, stark, brief, desperate. And so this cry before the coming of the kingdom in fullness is a basic cry of the godly. It reflects the fact that even as redeemed, we are, if you will, stranded. Stretching forward to the resurrection, longing to be placed beyond the threat of death, beyond the threat of illness, beyond the threat of losing everything in an instant, beyond pain and tears. The whole creation, Paul says, groans in futility awaiting the new creation. And we too, even if we're not in the dire straits of the psalmist, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan for final redemption. To live is to groan. And it is to cry, how long? History is interminable to suffering people. And you know, what makes this cry so full of its emotional intensity, its pathos, is the apparent silence of God, his apparent refusal to answer, his frustrating slowness, As the minutes tick by like hours for the one in anguish, it's psychologically exhausting to have to pray like this. I read one commentator who said this. He said, God waits for the time to ripen before he acts. And while he waits, he is seeking to ripen us for the coming harvest. While there's some wisdom in that, and I think it's true, obviously, it can certainly be cold comfort if you're the one who's in distress. What can you do when you've come to the point where your prayer is simply, how long, Lord, how long? And this brings me to the second point here, save me. The psalmist keeps praying. Verse 4, turn or return, Lord, And deliver me. He senses somehow that God's face, God's kindness is turned from him. And he asks God to turn back to him in love. Save me, the text says. Save me because of your unfailing love. This this word for unfailing love here means love grounded in the covenant. Covenant love or loyal love. Covenant love. Loyalty, loyal love, it expresses the very heart of God for his people. In other words, the psalmist is doing, and we've seen this before in the Psalms, he's he's saying, God, you've made a covenant with us. You've bound yourself to me in love. Save me in terms of that covenant love. The basic lesson in praying from the Psalms is to appeal to the covenant that God has made with you in Jesus Christ. And to make the issue, 
as quickly as we can about God's honor and his name and his word and his bond. Then in verse 5, we might say he appeals to God's own glory. Even if you will, maybe perhaps to God's own self-interest. He says, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? There's a certain kind of desperation here. When you get to this point in praying and your prayer is, You'll have one less worshiper in your public assembly if you let me die. Right? That's what the psalmist is saying here. I won't be able to give you praise in the temple, in the midst of your people. Death is an enemy, and the psalmist wants to be delivered from it. But notice his reason here. It's so that he can proclaim God's name and praise him. And so in his desperate straits, the psalmist is teaching us that this praising of God, and nothing but this, is why we live. We have breath in our lungs to recount God's deeds, to confess God, his ways, his works, his infinite, glorious perfections, to proclaim his name. We should remember this, all of us, before we are on the verge of the grave. We should remember today and proclaim and praise the Lord with all our might. With full-throated exuberance, for the psalmist is near death, and he's teaching us about what it means to live. The third point here is tears. If, if, the, if the phrase, how long, O Lord, how long, is... Not the saddest line of the text, then the beginning of verse 6 may well be, I am worn out from my groaning. I'm worn out from my groaning. I scarcely have a heart left to pray. At this point, prayer, if it's even to be called prayer, is just groaning. It's the whole ordeal has taken its toll. I love this brutal realism in the Psalms. They're they're unblinking. The psalmist is worn out. He's worn down. And that's all he has left to tell God. I'm worn out from my groaning. He doesn't gloss this. There's no glossing of this with any piety. You know, this is why the communion of the saints, praying with and for one another, is so important. Because we often don't have the desire, much less the strength, to pray for ourselves. We can barely gather ourselves to do it. We can't engage our own situations anymore. And you know what? God never intended you to, do, to be able to do that. He never intended that you'd be able to stand alone in prayer. The Christian life is not about heroic individuals prevailing mightily in prayer. Whatever mythology you might hear about that. It's about weak, broken people. It's about the body of Christ. The communion of the saints upholding one another in their weakness. 
We need the body of Christ because we're often to this point where all we can do, if anything, is just groan. You need someone else who's going to bring some fresh strength and hands and shoulders to bear the burden when it becomes impossible to bear any longer. All night long, he says, all night long I flood my bed with weeping. I drench my couch with tears. Groaning tears have replaced any kind of articulate request. Yet in some profound way, this is the deepest form of prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know one of the lessons in praying from the Psalms? It's this, less words, more groaning. His eyes, he says, they grow weak with sorrow. They fail. He has no vitality. His eyes are dim and faded. You can see when a person has given up in life in their eyes. You can see it. And here for the first time, we see that he's not just sick. He has actual foes, enemies, the text says. Maybe they're exploiting the sickness. Maybe their opposition is the cause of the, of, of the ruin of his health. We don't know. But we can be sure of this. The psalmist has enemies, and he can't rouse himself to fight them. Surely everybody has felt that in life. I've got enemies, and I cannot rouse myself to fight them. Maybe tomorrow. His spirit is crushed. If there's any dim flicker of hope, it's the fact that he's writing the psalm down in in the presence of the Lord. He documents the decline of his vitality. And his fourth point here is the Lord has heard. Surprising somewhat, in the midst of all his agony and his pleas and his howlongs and his groanings and his tears, something mysterious And something wonderful has happened. He's received what one commentator called an answering touch. An answering touch from God. This this often happens in this kind of desperate praying. The situation may not change, but God meets us somehow. Somehow we sense his presence. Somehow we're aware again of the light of his countenance. And even if the situation hasn't changed, we sense, perhaps for the first time, that in fact God is listening, that he does hear us. This is the experience of the saints throughout the ages. And if he has heard us, it means all will be well. I love the portrait of Jesus in Isaiah 42, where he speaks of the messianic servant of the Lord as one who will not extinguish a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. Right? The psalmist is a smoldering wick, a bruised reed, and God does not extinguish him. God has given him answering touch. And so the mood of the psalm changes. It becomes confident, even defiant, with verse 8. So we get there, 
Away from me, all you who do evil. Do you know who cites these words? The greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the last judgment. Depart from me, all you who do lawlessness. Jesus prayed this psalm. Jesus was in the depths that this psalmist was in. And so the psalmist now addresses his foes, who he couldn't rouse himself to even deal with. Now he addresses them directly. He says in verse 9, The Lord's heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. And David is the king. He doesn't pray as as a private person. This means when God restores and heals the king, the anointed king's enemies are going to be overwhelmed, the text says, with shame and anguish. They'll turn back suddenly. So this David, in this prayer, is a picture of Christ the king, the greater son of David, whom all the scriptures, and in a unique way, I think, the Psalms point to him. These were his songs. This is Jesus' songbook. These were the prayers of his life. He cites two psalms on the cross. Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 led to a tradition in the early church that Jesus was probably reciting that section of the Psalter throughout his whole passion. He has these psalms in his bones. He knows Psalm 6. Because he experienced this kind of desperate crying to be saved from death, the book of Hebrews tells us. During his days on the earth, he prayed, how? With loud tears and crying to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Jesus is a desperate prayer. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. He faced a cup of suffering he didn't choose or desire to drink. And he felt the wrath and chastisement of God for our sins, though he was innocent. He had the divine displeasure upon him. He was worn out, sapped of all strength, as Psalm 22 puts it. He cried out, how long? He faced the silence of his father in the face of his own desperate pleas. And you know, as dreadful as the depths of this psalm are, it pales in comparison to his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet he was heard, even as the psalmist hears, he was heard. His prayer was accepted, and his enemies shall depart from him in shame and disgrace. And that means in him, in the greater David, your sufferings are enfolded. They're undergirded. In fact, they're the very means by which you come to share his glory. Jesus' victory means the Lord has had mercy on you. Because he was heard, it means he hears your prayer. 
It means he shall save you. And your wholeness and your well-being are bound up. They're anchored in his resurrection. So your prayers then, and your tears, and your groaning, they're not in vain. They are not in vain. There is one underneath and alongside them. Weeping may last for the night, the long night, the too long night. But in Jesus, joy always comes in the morning. Amen.